This week, the inquiry into the death of Baha Musa in Iraq reports its findings. Quite apart from the violence carried out on the detainees, the process of hooding them was unjustified and wholly unacceptable. Ten years on from 9-11, is it really possible to fight a war on terror? And could it be magic? Scientists develop an invisibility cloak for tanks. Hello, I'm Matt Teal. Welcome to the programme. A public inquiry into the death of the Iraqi hotel worker Baha Musa, who was beaten in the British Army custody in Basra, has concluded that the soldiers involved were guilty of a very serious breach of discipline. The highly critical report, which has made 73 recommendations to the MOD, said Mr Musa had suffered an appalling episode of serious gratuitous violence. The inquiry chairman, Sir William Gage, said Musa and his fellow detainees had been kept in hot, squalid conditions for 36 hours and that their treatment was wholly unacceptable. The events of 14 to 16th September 2003 were indeed a very great stain on the reputation of the army and no doubt they did at the time greatly damage some of the good work done by one QLR and other units in Iraq. My judgment is that they constituted an appalling episode of serious, gratuitous violence on civilians which resulted in the death of one man and injuries to others. They represented a very serious breach of discipline by a number of members of one QLR. Well, we're joined by Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff. Lord Dannett, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. What did you make of the inquiry's findings? Well, the inquiry's findings make very sober uh, and difficult reading. Um, Sir William Gage has spent three years going into this in great detail. And as uh, the report says, uh, he reports on grave and shameful uh, events. Um, Quite rightly, one can only conclude that this is is a bad day for many individuals within the army. I think the only crumb of comfort that one can take is that Sir William quite rightly recognises that the vast, vast majority of soldiers who took part in operations in Iraq uh, between 2003 and 2009 carried out their duties uh, with exemplary uh, conduct in very difficult and trying circumstances. But there were a number, mercifully a very small number, who behaved uh, in a shameful way by uh, inflicting injuries, in this case on Mr. Bahamusa. And also there were others who chose to say nothing. Uh, interestingly, I and others think it's almost as shameful that some chose to say nothing when they knew that things were going wrong and that they should speak up and that they didn't. Uh, that's almost as bad, if not as bad, as those who inflicted the, the blows on his body from which he died. It's and and very, very sad. Sir William Gage, not only critical of the soldiers involved, but the, the chain of command and also the MOD, uh, describing it as a, a corporate failure at the Ministry of Defence. Uh, did you have any idea that that sort of thing was going on? Well, I think the corporate failure um, part of his report, and of course it's an extremely long report, need both hands to carry it, um, really refers to what the Secretary of State for Defence, uh, Dr Fox, said in the House of Commons when I was listening to him. The rather surprising corporate memory loss of the banning of a number of interrogation techniques. Um, those techniques were practiced in Northern Ireland in the early days and were banned by the Heath government in 1972. 
1972 to 2003 was quite a long period of time, and some find it surprising. I find it a little bit less surprising that um, techniques that had been banned in 72 somehow reinvented themselves uh, in 2003. It shouldn't have happened. And uh, that was a corporate memory loss. It was a failing of the system, but over quite a period of time. Um, so I think that is uh, something that people have got to reflect on now. Of course, what we have to remember uh, uh, is that we have said pretty much from the start that this was wrong behaviour. Uh, we instigated uh, General Sir Mike Jackson, who was my predecessor as Chief of the General Staff, instigated an internal report, which Brigadier Robert Aitken conducted, and it was published uh, during my time as, as CGS. And we looked very closely at the context of the operations at the time. We looked very closely at all that had happened. And we drew many lessons from it, and we have begun to apply those lessons. Indeed, the Ministry of Defence has spent considerable time over the last few years making sure that these things can't happen again. The way that we handle prisoners uh, is done differently. The training that we have in handling of prisoners is done differently. So one would like to think that these grave and shameful events that Sir William Gage uh, reports on and reflects on, it should not be possible to happen again. Now, of course, you can never say it'll never happen again because we're all fallible and there are human beings involved uh, in, our, uh, in our system. But I do believe that we've learnt the lessons, we've changed our training when necessary, uh, and that all possible steps have been taken to make sure these sort of things won't occur again. And indeed, they are not. Uh, in Afghanistan, where we're currently deployed. In terms of the reputation, though, of the British Army, phrases in the report like, like violent and cowardly, a lack of moral courage, these are the very antitheses of what, of what the general public expects from our armed forces, isolated or, or otherwise as these events might have been. How much of a stain on the reputation of the army has this episode left behind? It's a stain on the reputation of a number of individuals, some of whom are named in the report and some of whom are not, but they all know who they are. Uh, the allegation was made in the House of Commons just now that it was a stain on the army, and the Secretary of State said that actually that was not the case. It was a stain on, on some individuals. But I think the main point is we set ourselves high standards. We've got core values, um, core values of selfless commitment, courage, integrity, discipline, loyalty, and respect for others. And in this case, in particular, that core value of respect for others was completely smashed by a number of individuals. When we go uh, to a faraway place on, on operations... We go so, whether we like it or not, pretty close to the moral high ground. But when operations, when activities, when abuse like this occurs, then we go from the moral high ground to the valley in a very dramatic way and in the eye of the media. So everybody in the army should know, and the vast majority of decent people in the army really do know and understand, that their behaviour in these circumstances must be impeccable. It must be of course, hard, it must be tough, it must be appropriate for the circumstances that we're in, but it must always be within the law. In this case, a small number of people did what they shouldn't have done, it was against the law, and another group of people lacked the moral courage to say, stop, this is wrong, or they lacked the moral courage to go to the chain of command and say, hey, things are going on that shouldn't be going on. Moral courage is almost the most precious thing that we have in the army, and we really have to build it up and make sure everyone understands that this is their responsibility and their responsibility as an individual. Uh, Lord Dannett, st stay there, stay with us. I want to bring in Christopher Lee, our defence uh, analyst. C Christopher, war is an ugly business. I is it naive to suggest that we should expect the British military to be whiter than white in every situation? Uh, no, I don't think it is naive to expect that. I think, you know, as ever, the generals got it right on the button. There are a lot of people who knew what was going on, knew what had gone on, and chose to cover it up. But this thing is, 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 goes back to the 1960s. 
a lot of the training of prisoner handling, the training of resistance to interrogation for capture-prone troops, for example, it was all trained on the idea of how the Soviet forces would treat us. Uh, Northern Ireland uh, came along. There were some terrible inquiries there, or terrible findings from inquiries. But what hasn't happened, what people don't realise, is that prisoner handling, when you first pick up somebody, is the first stage of intelligence gathering to assess whether the person you've picked up has got something that you will need either tactically or, or perhaps for, for theatre intelligence. And then you get this ludicrous situation where I suspect we have to go back to something else. The training of people who don't normally handle prisoners, the training of people who don't normally interrogate them, and essentially the training of the people that the army relies on so much, and that's the NCO Carter, to say, stop, something's going wrong here. But sadly, in one of the recordings I heard of what happened there, uh, there was a young officer involved. So very, very quickly, after all this, after £30 million, after eight years of an inquiry, after 73 recommendations, could this happen again? Uh, that's the dread, isn't it, that it could happen again if the training isn't right. But I'll tell you something. I think that uh, the Secretary of State Fox is absolutely right here and that it's not a stain on the army. It's an incident, just as Abu Ghraib wasn't a stain on the American army. It was an unfortunate incident. And to some people might say it's astonishing there weren't more. Still to come, it's nearly 10 years since the 9-11 terror attacks. We look back on the war on terror. And how do you make a tank completely invisible? BAE Systems may have developed a device which sounds like something from Harry Potter. BFBS SIPREP Forces charity bosses appeared before a committee of MPs yesterday to talk about long-term care for the injured in the context of the military covenant. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, has called on local authorities to prioritise injured soldiers for council housing. Some councils, notably Birmingham and Barnet, have already adopted the policy. Earlier, I spoke to Labour MP Gisela Stewart, who's a member of the Commons Defence Select Committee. She started by explaining how things work in her Birmingham constituency. I think we, uh, Birmingham as a city really woke up to that need uh, in relation to the hospital provision there. Uh, soldiers coming back to Selly Oak and now the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And uh, that became in the public consciousness uh, much more aware of the, the needs of the military but also the, the debt we owe them. So I think the initiative by the housing department to be, I think, the first one to make it absolutely clear that A, we would have specially built houses uh, but also give them priority was the right and proper thing to do. How do you balance the right and proper thing to do in terms of our forces personnel and, and the perception uh, among the public, maybe, that they're simply jumping the queue? But the, there's a real problem at the moment because there's such a lack of provision of social housing across the country. So uh, in, in, in certain areas, anybody will be charged with jumping the queue. But my answer to this is that we have got a special responsibility to, to the forces and their families. It's a very special relationship, and therefore I think they do have a right to be treated properly whilst they serve, but also once, once they no longer serve us and we still owe them that debt. Do you think that there's an element that, that we, sh we could be sort of guilty of, of creating a postcode lottery system if some housing authorities are, are operating this system and others aren't? And, and some areas have got uh, closer connections and are more dependent on the military and the, the local population will have a closer relationship. And I think I don't think there's anything wrong for uh, local councils who, of course, 
these are all politically led by people who have been directly elected, uh, respond to the feeling in an area. So to make it blanket provisions across the country and impose a duty on, on authorities, I think would be the wrong way around. But to encourage it uh, and to, to, to highlight those who do as good practice, I think that is, is right. Although the Housing Minister, Grant Shapps, uh, does want more provision or better provision to be enshrined in law, do you think that would be going too far then? Well, whenever ministers enshrine anything in law, uh, and having been a minister myself, I always wait till I have seen the small print of how it's enshrined. Uh, they may just put down the broad principles uh, and then leave it up to local authorities how they implement it. And if we believe in, 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 in local authority uh, rights, then, then I don't think the centre should dictate uh, that specifically. In terms of Birmingham and the perception among the public of, of this system of, of putting um, forces personnel higher up the priority list, uh, do you think we're asking too much of, of the public in some way in terms of balancing their desire that the forces are looked after properly and maybe their own personal situations where they're also on long waiting lists for housing? Uh, I've I'm a local MP. I hold regular advice surgeries where housing is an issue that comes up uh, very frequently. All I can say is that I have not heard a single person say anything other than praise for that initiative. So the, the public feels it relates to it. But also, uh, I think such things as uh, HMS Daring was uh, was given the freedom of the, the city in Birmingham and they, they, they marched uh, outside the council house, as I said, with the hospital. There, there, there is an awareness as a city uh, and a gratitude as a city. So uh, I can see the theoretical objections, but certainly in Birmingham I haven't heard any of them. On, on a wider uh, topic, what did you make of the evidence given by Forces Charities during yesterday's committee hearing? Has the MOD got the care of servicemen uh, right, generally? They have got much, much better, uh, and I think so have the charities themselves in terms of how they work with MOD. The, the things which we were most concerned about is, on the one hand, you've got this continuous tension of, is the MOD abusing almost the goodwill of the charities by making them do things which really the Ministry of Defence should be doing? Uh, and that was something both sides were always conscious of. But the long-term issue which troubled us most, and the charities were extremely conscious of, that post-2015, uh, when majority of our troops will have come back from Afghanistan, uh, that 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, uh, young men who currently help for heroes, uh, portrays as heroes will no longer be young man, men, they'll be injured, uh, there'll be a generation of people who don't even remember Afghanistan anymore, that we keep that flow of support and charitable donations uh, in the long term so that people are guaranteed their support. That was really the, the, the biggest issue for us. Uh, Gisela Stewart MP talking to me a little bit earlier on. Well, Lord Dannett is still with us. Uh, when you were CGS, you highlighted the fact that the military covenant had been broken. Do you think it's been fixed in any way? Well, um, I don't want to nitpick on the terminology. I certainly highlighted <clears throat> the military covenant. Um, I was rather particular to say that it was not broken. I said repeatedly that it was out of balance. And the balance we have to achieve is on the one hand, the government of the day, the elected government of the day, gives us in the army and the armed forces a certain amount of work to do, which we'll willingly do, provided on the other hand, the legitimate needs of individual servicemen, uh, and their families and indeed the veteran community are properly looked after. When we're in balance, we can do a lot of work. When we're out of balance, that's when we struggle. So it wasn't broken, it was out of balance. I think that the last government eventually, uh, the penny dropped with them and we began to move in the right direction. And I think we improved the balance somewhat. 
I think what is unfortunate, um, and I think it's probably against the desire of the current government, but it's what's happened, is because the Ministry of Defence budget is in such terrible order, as indeed the, national, the nation's finances are in bad order, that a number of things have had to be cut back that we other, otherwise would have liked to continue. Um, a number of allowances and a number of areas, increased spending on accommodation, which we've begun to make progress on, has walked backwards on. So we've got to keep the notion of a military covenant very much in people's mind. It's going into law in the Armed Forces Bill, called now an Armed Forces Covenant, and make sure that we all, within the chain of command and within Parliament and with the Ministry of Defence and within government, all work to make sure that servicemen and women and veterans get a fair crack of the whip. Do you agree with Giza Stewart that we should be encouraging local authorities to do more in terms of housing provision or, or other support, or should we be enshrining more in law so that they have to do more? I think it's right to enshrine it in law. The mere fact that there should be an armed forces covenant and it's going to be in law in clause two of the new armed forces bill, that is good. I think we all have to work together. And this is where the public, private and charitable sectors all need to come together. That's the Ministry of Defence, it's government in London, it's local authorities, uh, it's the army itself, um, the Navy and the Air Force themselves, and also the service charities. Everybody has a role to play to make sure that our individual service people and their families and veterans are properly looked after. From your point of view, what are the absolute priorities now in terms of enshrining more of this in law and making more provision? What should be next? Is it, is it mental health provision? Well, that is going to be the big one for the future. And I think Gisela Stewart was, was right in what I heard her say uh, just a moment or two ago. Yes, of course, um, those who have come back injured from Iraq and Afghanistan are very much uh, in the public eye at the present moment. Um, a lot of people do call them heroes, and of course the new charity Help for Heroes very much has highlighted that. But I think everybody involved in the care of our physically or psychiatrically injured um, soldiers realise that this is going to be a long-term business. And although... Yes, the crest of wave of, of enthusiasm by the general public to support us will die off a little bit in the future. Um, the charities themselves, the Ministry of Defence itself, are all working together to make sure there is long-term care for people, particularly those who are suffering with psychiatric injury, with post-traumatic stress disorder, having flashbacks. Some of them are having it now, and sadly to say, some will not experience it for five or ten years to come. So we've got to be there for them. And that's why charities like Combat Stress... Um, the Army Benevolent Fund now called the Soldiers' Charity and Help for Heroes and the Ministry of Defence. They're all working together for now, for the medium term and for the long term. I think the psychiatric injury problem is probably the big one for the future and we've got to really work hard at that. OK, Lord Dannett, thank you very much for joining us. On Sunday, it will be 10 years since the 9-11 attacks on the United States. Approximately 3,000 people lost their lives. Commemorative services will be held in the US, here in Britain, and also at the US base in Afghanistan, Camp Leatherneck. Simon Marks is from the Feature Story News Agency and joins us from their Washington bureau. Simon, thank you very much for being with us on the programme today. Uh, President George W. Bush declared a war on terror after the attacks, which led to both British and American troops fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, of course. Do 10 years on Americans still associate the conflict in Afghanistan with the attack on the Twin Towers? I think there's no question that they do. Uh, I think the bigger question, though, for politicians and lawmakers here and those uh, hoping to become one day president is whether uh, the war in Afghanistan particularly is at the forefront still in the public mind. And uh, I think one could argue that it isn't. Uh, initially, of course, it was directly associated with the events of 9-11. Uh, then George W. Bush's very controversial decision to uh, invade Iraq, overthrow Baghdad, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, in the Iraq 
Iraqi capital. Uh, those were clearly direct consequences uh, of the events of 9-11. But so much time has now elapsed, and there are so many more pressing domestic concerns that many American voters have uh, that I think one can argue uh, that in the public mind, we're not really living through a time of war. Was the term a war on terror initially ill-conceived? Did, did we sort of paint ourselves into some sort of corner? Is, is it a war that can ever be won? Well, it's certainly a term that became highly politicised here in the United States. You may remember that at one point the Bush administration stopped talking about a war on terror and started talking about a global war on terrorism as though passing the phrase uh, was going to help them deal with some of their opponents in the Democratic Party. Uh, Barack Obama, of course, has inherited that war on terror. He doesn't often use the phrase because it is so uh, associated with neoconservative Republican leadership in the country, uh, but uh, it is a war on terrorism that is clearly being waged. And uh, even this week, you've seen reports here in the United States assessing the performance of the Department of Department of Homeland Security, which was created in the immediate aftermath of 9/11, pointing still to sizable uh, holes in America's uh, system of protecting the homeland. So uh, the war on terror or terrorism, whatever you call it continues uh, whether politicians like to use that particular phrase or not. Okay, Simon, stay there. Uh, Christopher, let's bring you in on this one. Uh, Have we waged war on an ideology and can that ever be won? Uh, Yeah, it's the term war, isn't it? Um, It's interesting that when Eliza Manning and Buller, who was then the um, head of the MI5, the day after the Twin Towers, went to Washington to talk to the people there and she said, do not use this term war on terror. This is a criminal act. Think it through like that. Well, of course, you can't think it through like that. The problem with the using the term war uh, as opposed to a war against another country is that it's people say, well, actually, who are you fighting and what are we trying to fight? The other part of it, it becomes extraordinarily important in, in the American psyche. Um, the biggest event that damaged the American psyche at the time and continues to do so was America's own civil war. And it's still the same. War means actually going to war. It means getting killed. It means tie a yellow ribbon. It means money. It means far more than saying, how do we, how do we, as Simon was talking about there, how do we sort of make sure homeland security is fixed so that it doesn't happen again? Uh, Simon, that's interesting, isn't it? At, at the time after 9/11, that phrase "war on terror" was almost a "we will go and get them" call. Was it? Did, was that needed to be to be heard in America at the time? Do you think? I think it definitely needed to be heard, certainly in the immediate aftermath of the events. I mean, I was here then. I remember the visceral anger that existed uh, across the United States and the sense of surprise that the U.S. homeland was so vulnerable to, let's face it, a a, a pretty uh, easy and uh, inexpensive attack that was carried out uh, against such vital U.S. interests. But I think Chris makes a very valid point. War also means a sense of sacrifice domestic. And this war, because of the way in which it's been uh, prosecuted to some extent, and also because of the nature of modern American society, has not led to much self-sacrifice at home. Americans have not been asked to you know, give up their third car or abandon the high-speed internet connection or the 24-hour 500 cable television universe. Uh, so there is this sort of disconnect between the people in the field who are fighting the war and in large numbers 
footballers are, are coming home with injuries that medical science today can help uh, heal that it wouldn't have been able to in the past, and a public that doesn't feel particularly connected with those events on the battlefield. Will that continue, though? I mean, given the current financial crisis, how important is it for Americans to see the majority of its troops home by 2015? Look, it's desperately important politically for Barack Obama to be seen to have made progress in Afghanistan uh, because that was such a core uh, pledge of his campaign for the presidency last time around. So I think you can assume that uh, unless there is an incredibly uh, downward spiral in Afghanistan, this White House is going to pursue those troop withdrawals uh, because they'll be uh, pushing them through uh, at a time when America is debating who should be the next president. Should Barack Obama get another four years or is a Republican alternative a a likely successor? Uh, so, yes, I think that the uh, domestic political conditions are such that uh, there's no question that's going to that's going to take place. Christopher, how important was the killing of Osama bin Laden in terms of drawing a line under that we will go and get somebody war on terror ethos? Yeah, it, uh, it took nearly 10 years. And that is another aspect of this. Uh, you expect, if you say, right, war on terror, you expect to be able to go and do it. What we have seen in the United States are two important factions. Uh, one is uh, a decade of incompetence, military incompetence, as far as the public is concerned. They said, well, look, you, you've, you've gone off to Iraq, seems to be in a bit of a foul-up. You went to Afghanistan, all because of Twin Towers, almost. Uh, that hasn't really worked either. The other thing that's happened is America has... Uh, America, because it was concentrating on this, really forgot to look at itself and what America was doing and how it was creating the difficulties in its own society, whether it was on Wall Street or or whatever. If you come to Europe, uh, say in the United Kingdom, we have had 200 years of fighting so-called terror. Remember, the function of terror is to terrorise. The function of terror is to frighten a whole society or knock it off course. And if there is a success story for, uh, for al-Qaeda, it is in crucial areas it knocked America off course. The crucial fi- find now is whether the al-Qaeda and the others are disrupted enough for America to get back on course. And probably the only way of doing that is for a presidential election. Okay, Christopher, stay there. Simon Marks from the uh, Feature Story News Agency. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Tanks could soon be able to become invisible at night, thanks to a new device being developed by BAE Systems. It's an invisibility cloak that masks their infrared signature and allows them to mimic the temperature of their surroundings. It can also make a tank look like other things, like a cow or a car, when seen through heat-sensitive equipment. Uh, Mike Sweeney from BAE Systems joins us now to explain all. Uh, Mike, I've just read that. I understand very little of it. Tell us more about it. Hi, Matt. Well, essentially, this is uh, technology where we cover the tank with uh, pixels, metal-covered pixels, about the size of your hand. Uh, It takes about 1,000, 1,500 to cover a tank, uh, and they effectively turn the tank into a big infrared TV. By using images from the tank's database or uh, real-time, you know, grab-and-copy technology, you basically take a picture of uh, an object nearby, you can become that object to um, infrared sensors or blend in with the background. I should stress that the, the technology works at night, but it also works during the day uh, for uh, uh, devices that use heat-seeking equipment. So um, infrared, uh, heat-seeking missiles, night vision goggles, uh, sens- uh, infrared sensors of any kind. I'm sure I saw this applied to an Aston Martin in a Bond film probably about four or five years ago, so you're behind the game, aren't you, surely? 
Absolutely, yeah, but this is, this is real life. Um, so practically then, uh, there are sort of one or two issues that, that, that sort of um, are raised. Will tanks still be able to be uh, identifiable to allies? How difficult will actually be working out what is a tank and what isn't be? That's the first point is, is a very good question. Um, the main interest in this uh, programme from the Swedish MOD, the FMV, uh, is actually IFF, Identification Friend of Foe, to avoid fratricide. What you can do with it, uh, because as I say you can display anything on the tank, is display a big identification tag either on top of the vehicle, which is visible to aircraft, or on the side facing friendly forces, whilst the other side of the vehicle remains stealthy and invisible to, um, to enemy sensors. OK, uh, the two big questions then, cost and when? Cost is affordable. We we're, we're not saying any more than that at this stage. And when, uh, the guys in Sweden tell me about two years before we have something ready for production. Uh, Christopher Lee, you seem slightly less surprised by all this technology uh, than I am, really. Well, I mean, I mean if, you, if you talk about, for example, uh, the technology of hiding things, we go back to you asking about Osama bin Laden. When the two Black Hawk helicopters, the, the SEALs, were using... When they were sent in, or they say, right, target you to go in, the first thing they said, can we replace all the, all, all the materials on it with materials that make us harder to see? There's another side of this. Is, I mean, it's not much good for the British Army, who's in the process of getting rid of its main battle tanks, of course. But the side of it, I want to know where it goes next. And that's a, quite a serious question. Could you actually do it? with your whole idea of communications, can you do it, what else can you do it with? Because at the end of the day, it seems to me what you've got to do is to get a big pot of uh, orange paint. I mean, you paint V on top of your tank to say, not us, we're on your side. Yes, indeed, Christopher, thank you very much. I want to know, is it susceptible to speed cameras and where do I get it? Uh, Mike, thank you very much for joining us, Christopher, as ever. That's uh, pretty much all we've got time for for uh, this week on SITREP. My thanks, as ever, uh, to Christopher Lee and all our guests. Um, we're always keep to hear from you on the programme. Email us at the usual address, sitrep at bfbs.com is how you get in touch. And you can now follow us on Twitter, at bfbssitrep is the address. Do uh, send in your thoughts and any ideas for features we might uh, look at in the future. Uh, until then, I'm Matt Till. We're back at the same time next week. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.